Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, church. Hope all of you are well. It is good to be opening God's Word together. And today we start a new book study on Philippians, looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as you all know, when we look intently at God's Word, uh, we often find that God teaches us many lessons. He exposes many fault lines. He leads us into prayer. He calls us into action. He supplies us with renewed hope and renewed strength, leading all of us to a life increasingly surrendered and dependent on Him. So even as I move forward into the sermon, I am no different, partially aware of my own weaknesses, totally have blind spots of my own, and personally aware of my need for all of you, for Christ-centered community, and for Christ Himself, who faithfully continues to mold us and shape us all. As you all know, this year our theme for the church is Rise, Let Us Go From Here taken from John chapter 14, verse 31. And it is the moment in scripture where Jesus informs his disciples of the necessity of his leaving so that they can have something better. And that left his disciples in total disarray, totally disoriented. And in the midst of that thick cloud and confusion, he says, rise, let us go from here. For us as a church with the many transitions that we've faced and are still facing, the call of Jesus still remains. We are to rise. Let us go from here in in daily dependence upon him. And while it's totally okay for us to lament and, and sit under the weight of our aches and sorrows, the imperative is to eventually rise, to put our faith in action, to go from here. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have linked the whole act of rising through through the Sermon on the Mount, conducted in collaboration with our gospel partners at Missions Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we have explored how God's word is to be internalized by us as believers. We explored how we are actually in a blessed state. As we grow in the relationship that we have with Christ, we grow in the awareness of our sinfulness, but we also grow in the awareness of God's holiness and our need for the redemptive work of Christ on the cross to bridge the widening gap between the two. Therefore, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted. We have seen how Jesus has called us to really be different and how the gospel is the power onto salvation, the tool that God uses to regenerate our hearts, reshape our priorities, reorder our loves, opening us up to the depths of our own offenses or our own sin, only to then point us to the depths of God's great love and our secured and blessed state in Him. We have come to realize that our ability to really rise as Christians depends on the degree of our submission to our Lord. And as we partner with Christ, it is He that does that transforming work, making us different. So so having explored the Sermon on the Mount, the question now is, what's next? So as elders at Harvest KL, Dan and I have decided after a week or so of prayer that we're going to move into a study of a book of the Bible this time. 
moving from topical studies in the first six months of the year to the Sermon of the Mount. Now we're going to look more closely into the book of Philippians. And we trust that the Lord has many things to say to us, many ways that he wants to grow us and shape us and mold us, but also to comfort us through his word in this season. I don't know about you, but one of my joys of being in a meeting, any kind of meeting, whether it's a workplace meeting or a church meeting, is when someone at some point in that meeting, preferably at the end, draws out the main highlights and recalls the main action points that everyone has agreed upon. See, meetings can be lengthy. Uh, many good important things are often talked about and often discussed. And in the midst of that is some intermittent uh, small talk. And, and often that can really leave me quite frazzled, quite overwhelmed, a little bit confused. Now, when someone causes us to all pause and begins to slowly but surely summarize some of the main points and highlights and the action points that everybody has agreed upon, the meeting starts to feel a bit more productive. It begins to bring me some clarity. It begins to draw things into focus. And I begin to sort of know what my role actually is. It, it reorders my disordered state. Similarly, my task today is to, funny enough, uh, begin, not end, in providing an overview of the book of Philippians, and then eventually leading us through the first 11 verses of the book. So all of us can then look at the text of Scripture in its proper context, its proper setting and frame, and hopefully really engage in the text more richly and deeply as a result. So let's begin. The book of Philippians was authored by the Apostle Paul. He was a prisoner in Rome and when he penned this book, and when he penned this letter, excuse me, and, and, and was already been in prison twice. Paul ended up in prison the first time when he first evangelized the Philippians. And now he finds himself in prison again. But the interesting thing to note about both of Paul's imprisonment is his rejoicing. And the paradox of a man rejoicing in prison lies at the root of what this book is all about. It is an attitude that demonstrates an unusual view of life, a uniquely Christian view of life. It demonstrates what it means to have the mind of Christ, which is key to this epistle and the key which we will explore further in the sermon. The primary purpose of Paul's letter to the Philippians was pastoral. He intended to thank them for their generous gifts and their support to encourage them and to reassure the Philippians. In fact, in all of Paul's epistles, Philippians is the most consistently positive and personal. Paul did not rebuke his church sharply. He did not refer to any major problems in it. Neither did he actually use the word sin in the book. There are warnings, yes, but these warnings were precautionary in nature. What does stand out in the letter, however, is his preoccupation with Jesus Christ, with many references to Scripture by name, and also to the gospel and the fellowship that was shared as a result. Now, the primary theme of Philippians is participation or partnership in the gospel, and its content can be summed up as one commentator puts it, rejoice, I rejoice, now you rejoice. Paul was able or enabled to rejoice in the most trying of circumstances. He was in prison. The example of a man whose life was so filled with joy, even in the midst of the most unfavorable of circumstances, he was actually waiting for the news of his potential death, teaches us that this joy does not proceed from some ivory tower of peace or some security of seclusion, but really a deep and intimate relationship with Christ himself. We see that joy noted as one of the fruits of the spirits in Galatians 5 is 
not merely an emotional quality that is there one moment and gone the next. It's actually a fruit that's empowered by God. It does not desert us because God himself does not desert us. And therefore, we don't need or have to be victims of despair. Paul knew this really well when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 to 10. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. In the latter part of the letter in Philippians, Paul actively reveals the secret of this rejoicing and this ability to really withstand under such great pressure. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And church, so can we. In Christ, there is victory. We can also note that Paul's, of Paul's great ambition for the church is really to enter into communion with Christ more deeply. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now let's go back to the main theme of the letter, participation or partnership in the gospel, which means to live out our faith, to share it effectively, which also means to have the mind of Christ. Paul highlights three ways to, find, to, have, a mind, to have the mind of Christ as revealed in the Philippians book. First, the mind of Christ is in the Savior, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. When we look at the life of Christ, we see that he did not regard his privileged position as something that he needed to retain. He did not value his position for the sake of the position. He laid it aside and stooped to unbelievable depths to lift those who needed redemption out of ruin. So, so what does this already mean to us? When we understand that Christ is the source of having this mind, then we should orient our lives in a way in which Christ is at the center. Paul said in Philippians 1 verses 21, he says, To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For some of us, to live is finances. For others, it is fame. For some, it is family. For others, to live is to have fun. Life is whatever we put at the center of living. Paul put Christ there. And because he put Christ there, he viewed God as Christ did. He saw people as Christ did. He viewed his purpose as Christ did. He established his priorities as Christ did. He conducted his daily affairs as Christ did. The entirety of Paul's life was increasingly driven and empowered by Christ. And so should ours be. Secondly, to have the mind of Christ is to increasingly abound in love, to love the things that he loves. His attitudes becomes our attitudes, regardless of our position of privilege or poverty or anywhere in between. But how do we grow in this kind of love? Well, on the one hand, we are to live life worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1 verse 27. That is, we are that we are, it doesn't just mean upright or morally upright behavior, it's actually conduct that the gospel drives. It is conduct that responds appropriately to the gift of God's grace to us, which then aims to make the gospel known. On the other hand, Paul, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We, are to have, we all have the responsibility to work out what God works in, in partnership with him. 
Lastly, from the letter of the, to the Philippians, we see that to have the mind of Christ is really to value and pursue God's reward. This reward is twofold. There is the element of present victory and also the element of a future glory. So let's look at the present victory element. The entire epistle to the Philippians is a revelation of Paul's triumph over circumstances that would have defeated many people. Rather than say, saying uh, everything is against him, Paul rejoiced that God's program was actually advancing. In all the, all the prison epistles, Paul viewed himself not as a prisoner of Nero, but of Jesus Christ. He believed the Lord had placed him there for the best purpose. Anyone can sing when he or she escapes prison, but Paul sang in prison. Now future glory. Throughout Philippians, Paul had Christ in view. He knew God will reward the mind of Christ in his children, just as he reward the mind of Christ in the Savior. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, he says, Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We strive to attain the prize, not to glorify ourselves, but to magnify the one who enables us to attain it, to enjoy communion with him because he has made us his own. In summary, in the letter to the Philippians, it highlights the importance of being partners in the gospel and having the mind of Christ. With Christ himself as the source, by increasing and abounding in love and valuing and pursuing God's reward. And when we as a church pursue these things together in community, exercising diligence in our own lives, confessing our sins with one another, and holding each other accountable in humility and conviction, living out our faith through love, we begin to build and stand on a sound foundation. We begin to mature, as God's words puts it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our scale, the measure of our influence in our homes, in our workplaces, in our city, in this nation and the world, is directly proportional to the conformity of our minds to Christ and having the mind of Christ, not to political power, not to charismatic leaders, not social influence or social influencers, not impressive buildings or presentations. The measure of our influence in all of these important places in life is derived from a humble attitude of submission and obedience to our Heavenly Father. It's a function of growing in the mind of Christ. One commentator put it, puts it this way, the essence of the mind of Christ is love. Its expression is joy. Its demonstration is prayer and sacrifice. If love, joy, prayer, and sacrifice characterizes us at people here at Harvest Kale, we will influence the places God has put us to his glory. Okay, now let's look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 to get a better understanding of how this mind of Christ deepened through a growing intimacy with Christ and our partnership alongside one another in the gospel. 
brings about this fullness, this joy, this love, this prayerfulness, this sacrifice. Let me read the full text, and then we will walk through it in smaller chunks. Philippians chapter 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that you, you begin a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affections of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. In verse 1, Paul introduces himself alongside, Tim alongside Timothy. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. What we notice here is that unlike in his other prison uh, epistles where Paul introduced himself as an apostle, he began by calling himself and Timothy simply as servants of Christ. This highlights again that the letter to the Philippians was positively personal in nature. Instead of needing to establish authority, his authority in order to give correction, this letter was primarily, primarily, primarily written to thank and to encourage and to assure and to affirm the believers in Philippi. Moving along in, in verse 1, we learn the audience that this letter was directed to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. By calling the Philippian believers saints, Paul was not really saying that they were sinless. He was merely saying that they were set apart by God and for God. He also addressed the overseers and deacons, which affirms the personal nature of this letter, because in no other prison epistle did Paul addressed the elders and deacons of the church specifically in the introduction in the way in which he did here. In verse 2, Paul goes on to say, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wished that God would bestow his grace and peace on the Philippians even more. Grace refers to God's unmerited favor and divine enablement. Peace is the cessation of hostilities and this inner tranquility that is a result of God's grace, which shows us the order in which he actually uses these terms is quite significant. Before we can actually have any genuine peace, there must be personal, a personal response to God's grace, his unmerited favor manifested in his son through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But both grace and peace find their source and fulfillment in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues to write, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is estimated at this point when the letter was written, it's been about 10 years or so since Paul actually walked with the Philippians. But the passing of time did not diminish his love or his interest in them. Every time Paul thought of them, he thanked God for them. Thinking, think about it. If, if, if we were the Philippian church reading the letter from the Apostle Paul, 
It brought a lot of joy. Here's Paul in Roman chains, some 800 miles away, 10 years apart. Yet Paul kept them in his prayers. In this verse, Paul also says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer in joy. So we notice here, none of the believers were excluded from Paul's prayer. Always in every prayer for you all. And then making my prayer in joy. And coming from a prisoner, this is especially significant. It was with joy that Paul sought the Lord on their behalf. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Which leads us to the first point of our sermon here today. Partnership in the gospel brings joy. The Philippian saints and Paul were, partnership, were partners in the things of Christ. They both gave of themselves to one another, Paul in making Christ known and the saints in meeting his needs. All of this was for the cause of Christ. They both labored hard side by side, day by day. But not only did they share in the journey with Paul and his sufferings, but they fellowshiped with him from the first day that they trusted Christ, from the first day until now. Reflecting on Paul and this sermon and this uh, verse of scripture, we see that reflecting on Christ-centered relationships and our journey together as a community affirms our partnership in the gospel and births joy. Why is that? Because we together experience and see God's hand move, how he brings things together, how he guides and directs, how his gospel is at work in the many facets of our lives, both individually and as a community, the correction that he provides. Now, the question for all of us to consider then really is, are we in community? Are we leaving room in our lives to notice and to reflect on God's faithfulness to us as a community? Are we grateful and lifting our brothers and sisters up in prayer with joy? Continuing on with the text, as Paul encourages and affirms the Philippian saints, he also bolsters his affection with the conviction of truth, a certainty. He goes on to say, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He was confident that God would most certainly bring to completion the good work that he had begun in them. And that good work was their salvation, initiated by God, witnessed through their fellowship and in the sharing of their life with one another. Salvation is a process that involves justification when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. And at that point, we are made right with God. The penalties of our sin has been borne on Christ, on his shoulders, on the cross, but it also includes sanctification, the progressive transformation that occurs continually from the time of justification. And all of this kind of culminates into glorification when we, as redeemed children, finally see Jesus Christ face to face. Paul was confident that just as surely God, as God has justified the Philippians, he would also continue to sanctify them and eventually glorify them. He did not just believe in this truth in an intellectual way, but his whole worldview was informed by it. The way in which he viewed the world was affected by this reality. In Romans 5, verses 8 to 10, it reads, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What confidence we have in Christ. What comfort. Salvation is God's work, not man's. And as surely as, as he has begun to deliver us, and as surely as he has already delivered us from the penalty of sin, he will also one day deliver us from the presence of sin also. Paul goes on to say, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affections of Jesus Christ. Paul almost seems like he's defending the intensity of his love here for the saints in Philippi. It is right for me to feel this way for all about all of you. Why? Why, why is there this need for him to defend? Because his love was uncommon love. Some of us even here, as we read these verses in scripture, would think, oh, wow, this is, this is, Rather, all pretty dramatic. But no, it's actually really and rather deep. He loved them with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it's actually possible to love others in this way. And the source of this love is Christ himself, who loves us more intensely, who pursues us never-endingly, who provides for us extensively. And the reason Paul said it was right for him to feel this way was the partnership that they shared in the gospel. They were both partakers of grace. They were both striving to grow in the mind of Christ, seeking to glorify the Savior. Which brings us to our second point this morning. Partnership in the gospel magnifies love. The use of the word heart refers to the whole person, the intellect, the emotion, the will. And it's not just the sentiment. The fact that the Philippians were in Paul's prayers, as we saw before, as we read before in the first part of this, the scripture, and on his mind and not on his nerves, really proved that they were actually on his heart. Being co-heirs and being co-laborers intensifies his love. Why? Because we are connected to the very source of love, to Christ himself. Sharing in the same goal to grow in the mind of Christ and the same mission to spread out the good news of the gospel. And we do this alongside each other. And it is this one anotherness that provides us the platform to learn and to cultivate and to administer this love. To love one another with the affections of Christ Jesus. See, even though Paul was many miles separated from the Philippians, he viewed their relationship as profoundly intimate. The affections Paul had for the Philippians were not merely human interest or attraction. It originated from Christ himself. Christ's love had so overwhelmed Paul that he couldn't help but love the Christians with the affections of Jesus Christ. Christ's affection became Paul's very own. The question for us to consider then by way of application is, is this a reality for us? Are we so overwhelmed by God's love that his affections become our affections and it changes the way in which we love others within the body of Christ? Moving along the text, Paul goes on to say, and it is my prayer that 
your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul had already written about praying for them in Philippians in the opening verses, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Now he's actually explaining what he, had, what he prayed for. So his readers will actually kind of get a sense or understanding in terms of the specifics of what he was asking God for on their behalf. And reading through the scripture, we can categorize Paul's petition as threefold. First, he prayed that their love would abound even more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul's prayer is for the Philippians' love for other believers to abound, to, to run over as the river overflows. He did not limit God's love or his capacity to increase that love, but he also understood that love should not be something just sentimental. It has to be more than that. It should be knowledgeable and discerning. So we see that having spiritual knowledge and insight or discernment into God's ways enables a Christian to love God and others more. One commentator puts it this way, a Christian can have an understanding knowledge of God's word, that is to be able to explain its meaning to others without having an experiential knowledge of the same. But when the Christian has put the word of God into practice in his life, then he has what Paul is talking about here. Knowledge and understanding and discernment insight that comes from an active wrestling and internalizing and applying of God's word in our lives. Secondly, he also prayed that they would approve excellent things. Possessing this kind of abounding love, grounded in knowledge of Christ and in all discernment, would enable the Philippians then to give approval to things of greatest value and importance to the things that are excellent. Conversely, the Philippians should also disapprove things of lesser significance. Now, most of us, when it comes to our choices that we face on a day-to-day -day basis, don't really face the choices between what is morally good or morally wrong or evil things. So some of us may, may still struggle with those things, but often between the things of greater value and things of lesser value, we choose them because we love them. And that choice reflects how discerning our love really is. Lastly, he prayed for his readers that they would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, the last point really brings into focus the ultimate goal and puts it into view. Living in harmony with God's revelation and his enabling spirit will result in our being pure and without blame, blameless, when we stand before God to give an account of the stewardship of our own lives. Paul wanted his readers to be rightly related to God and in a deepening relationship with him. Paul also wanted their relationships with others to be what God had intended them to be, to be informed by the mind of Christ and overflow of his love. One commentator speaking about relationships puts it this way. There are people who themselves are faultless but are so hard and harsh that they in the end drive people away from the faith. There are people who are good, but they are so critical of others that they repel other people from goodness. 
The Christian is himself pure, but his love and his gentleness are such that attract others to the Christian way and does not repel them. We are to be filled with the fruits of righteousness that comes through Christ, a sincere and gentle love, and to be, as 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15 says, the aroma or the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so my last point for us here today is partnership in the gospel empowers kingdom-centered prayer. How are we doing in kingdom-centered prayer? Are we praying that we may abound in love more and more? Do we pray that we would be pure and blameless, full of the fruits of righteousness, and not just us in our lives, but also for the lives of others within our congregation and the church locally or even globally? Church, here is our hope. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 3. Church, when we hope in the Lord, we purify ourselves because he on whom we have set our hope is pure. Some of us today might be asking, who is he? For others, it's always good to be reminded who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? What is he all about? He is the Son of God, the Christ, the righteous, full of grace and truth, our deliverer, our redeemer, our hope, the one who holds it all together, the source of every resource that we talked about today, and the one who has called us home. Selflessly, he gave up what was in his best interest for the sake and the betterment, for the sake of the betterment of others. He left the heights of heaven as the Son of God for the lowliness of earth. He who was sovereign became a servant. Instead of becoming the highest of servants, he became the lowly servant, a man. And even then, he could have lived a life of ease as a man, but he submitted to shame and death. He might have died in comfort and in private, surrounded by those who loved him. Instead, he died in agony and shame in public, surrounded by those who hated him. He could have died appreciated, but instead he died hated and misunderstood. This is our Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, our sin on his shoulders, his righteousness now on ours, who rose again on the third day, securing and empowering our hope. And the life now that we live in the flesh, we live in the faith, in faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us, life both abundantly in this world, and life eternally in the world to come. In him, we move and find our being. Church, as we're reminded of the depths of God's love and the secured nature of our hope, let us also be reminded that having embraced the gift of grace that God has given to us and the reality of salvation, we are partakers in the gospel seeking to grow in the mind of Christ together as one body. And this reality brings joy, magnifies love, empowers kingdom-centered prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word are the words of life. 
your word has the capacity and the ability to search us and make known to us the areas in which we are yet to yield and submit to you. Lord, we ask that you would renew our faith. Lord, for those who are considering Christ, we pray that you give them the strength and the will to choose you and to walk with you, to enjoy communion with you, and to know and taste and see that you are good. But also for us that have walked this journey for quite some time, being new or quite a number of years. Lord, help us also to be renewed in our understanding of your word, to sincerely seek hard after you, to taste and see that you are good, to recognize, Lord, that you have given us joy, that partnership in your gospel together alongside one another, side by side, births this joy. And the gift of your great salvation, the greatest gift of all, gives us a joy that far outweighs circumstances. Lord, we also pray that you would cement in our hearts and minds and make us a reality for us, that we would walk in prayer and that we would seek you prayerfully in kingdom-centered prayer, seeking the things of you in our lives and in our church. And Lord, that we would walk side by side in a community that seeks hard after you. Lord, we submit our prayers to you today. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. We trust you with outcomes. And we know that he who started a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We thank you for your promises. And we thank you for our time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.